As our children make their way out, you probably want to grab a Bible and turn to the book of Acts in chapter 16. Acts 16. And I'm going to be reading just a short section of that from the front of that chapter. I'm going to be reading verses 6 to 10. Sometimes that section is headed the Macedonian call. How God rerouted Paul and sent him specifically where God wanted him to go. Acts 16, starting in verse 6. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for this chance for us, your church, to sit under the authority of your word and to learn about the early church, the, the early years of when the church was uh, being founded and being spread. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure and an honor to, to learn these stories, to see how they relate to what you're doing in the church today. Thank you for making us part of this story that you are telling. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, just real quick, the theme this morning for the sermon is evangelism. Um, we're going to see different evangelistic opportunities that happen in the book of Acts. And I just want to say at the front end, uh, just to be clear, evangelism is not something that I personally consider myself good at. Um, it's something that I want to grow at. So I just don't want to give the impression that somehow this is my thing or that God has gifted me in this area. He has not. And I am not good at it. I grew up with a father who does have the gift of evangelism. I have no doubt. Every, almost every single meal at dinner time, he would share with us some sort of encounter, some st sort of story he had from earlier that day where he told somebody about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He still does that all the time. He sends me texts regularly. Hey, Jason, I got a, I got a lunch with a guy from work tomorrow. Please pray that I'll have an opportunity to tell him about Jesus. He, that's just how my dad is. It's how God made him, and it's awesome, and I'm not like that. I have never been like that. It's a struggle for me to walk through those doors and to take those opportunities to tell people about Jesus. So I just want to be honest about that at the front of the sermon and not give the wrong impression. Please don't think that I'm out there telling everybody about Jesus. I wish I was, but I don't, and I would like to grow at that. All right. So last time, last sermon, which was two weeks ago, because I was away last week, we were in the uh, beginning of Acts, and we heard a sermon from Acts chapter 6. Acts 6 takes place in Jerusalem. Now we're in Acts 16, and we're in Macedonia, specifically in the city of Philippi. So before we do anything else, I just want for us to pause and take a minute and figure out how we got from Jerusalem to Philippi. We'll just take a quick look at what happens between Acts 6 and Acts 16 so that we have some context for what's going on 
in Acts 16. So you may want to have your Bible open, and you may want to follow along with me. We're just going to quickly get from Acts 7 up to Acts 16. So um, in Acts 7, here's what we have. We have faithful Stephen, who is on trial before the Jewish high priest for his belief that Jesus is the Messiah. And as part of his testimony, Stephen basically, like, takes the stand and preaches a sermon to everybody. And the sermon recounts the history of Israel, kind of just retells the story of the history of Israel. Nothing controversial there to the high priest, except when he gets to the part about Jesus and how Jesus is the culmination of that history. That does not make the high priest happy. And in fact, the whole listening crowd does not like that conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. And so in response, they drag Stephen out outside, and they murder him. And as a kind of footnote to that story, we discover that a young man was present, a young man named Saul. He listened to Stephen's testimony. He heard the witness about the history of Israel and how it fits in with the Jesus story, and he, we're told, approved of Stephen's murder. Stephen being dragged out and murdered made Saul happy. He was glad to have that voice Silenced. Now that is an extremely important plot point in our story. If you're hearing this story for the first time, you wouldn't know that, but trust me, that is an important moment in the story. In the next chapter, we learn that this same guy, this same Saul, is now himself personally going out and ravaging the church. We're told he's going house to house and he's rounding up Christians, pulling them out of their families and throwing them into prison. So, and, and what we learn as, as a result of this persecution, right? The church is now actively, aggressively being persecuted. And as a result of that, Christians are being driven away from Jerusalem. They're being driven out of town. And they're being scattered throughout the area. Now, this was an attempt for the people in power to kind of like extinguish the flame of the early church. Snuff it out. Nip it in the bud. But all that, that, all that happened was the opposite. That persecution ended up fanning into flame the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it drove people away and they brought the message of Jesus with them wherever they went. It caused the message to spread. And the early church, not only were they driven out and take the message with them, but in some cases foreigners came to town, came to Jerusalem, uh, like there's a story we learn about an Ethiopian who comes to town, meets Philip. Philip tells him about Jesus. He accepts the message of Jesus. And then he goes back to Africa, presumably uh, taking the gospel, taking the message of the gospel with him and spreading that message on African soil. So then we get to chapter 9. And Saul is still doing his persecution thing. And, and he's on his way to Damascus, and on the way he meets, he encounters the risen Christ himself. And Saul has a profound conversion. He goes from being a persecutor of the church to a proclaimer of, the, of, of Christ. At the time, Saul was probably the most unlikely candidate for conversion. If you just had to pick someone, who, who, who's the most unlikely person to go from, um, from being a persecutor to being uh, a proclaimer? You would have said Saul. No way. It's not, it's, Saul will never be converted. And yet, over and over again, God chooses the unlikely. Right? That's a theme in Scripture. God chooses the unlikely. God chooses the unworthy. 
Sometimes God even chooses the unwilling to accomplish his purposes. And so after Saul's conversion in chapter 9, the focus shifts slightly to a different strand of the story, and we, we, we bump into another milestone conversion in the history of the church. Cornelius and his family come to faith in Acts chapter 10 through the ministry of the apostle Peter. The reason that's significant is because Cornelius is not Jewish. He is a, he is a fearer of God. He is a worshiper of God. We're told that, but he's not Jewish. And he receives a vision from God instructing him, contact this guy Peter, bring him out, bring him over to your place and listen to the message that he has for you. And so Peter is sent for and contacted. Peter's initially a little hesitant to come because he's not sure that this message that he has is intended for the non-Jews. Everybody's still figuring this out, right? Is this, is, this, is this a message for the Jewish people, for God's special chosen people, or is this a message for everybody? Uh, we're not sure. We're figuring that out. So God sends Peter a symbolic vision indicating in the vision that God is expanding the horizons of his family. He's, he's doing a special thing here. And he is now going to include Gentiles in this work as well. And so Peter receives that vision. He understands it. He goes to the house of Cornelius. He preaches the message of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit descends upon Cornelius and his household. And they too come to faith, become part of the church. Now that doesn't feel that radical to us today. Because the church today is mostly made up of people who do not have a Jewish background. But that really was quite radical and quite controversial at the time, right? Because you've got to remember, one of the fundamental principles of the Old Testament is that God's people are not supposed to be like the other nations. They are supposed to be separated from, different from, set apart from the other nations. And now, all of a sudden, they're being told, no, yeah, but wait a minute, you, you're supposed to integrate with those same other nations, bring them into your community. And many of the early Jewish Christians, Christians with Jewish background, they weren't so sure about that. So they had to have a special meeting to discuss it and figure it out. And they talk it through. What is going on here? Who is this message for? Does it include the Gentiles or not? If it does include the Gentiles, do they need to first convert and become Jewish? And then after becoming Jewish, can they become Christian? Or can they bypass that and just, they're just, they don't know. They're figuring it out. So they get together, they talk, they pray. The conclusion they reach, if you want to read it, is in chapter 11 and verse 18. And here's what it says. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. There you go. Who would have thought? To the Gentiles also. They too are being granted repentance. They too are receiving eternal life. And so now the message is going forward at a rapid pace to Jews and to Gentiles, to anyone who will listen to it and receive it. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's for everybody. There are no ethnic boundaries. It's for everybody. There are no demographic boundaries. It's not for rich people. Only, it's not for poor people, only. It's for everybody, it's for everybody, without exception, without distinction. That was radical, that was new, that felt a little crazy, and that continues to be the case today. It's for everybody. So Paul and Barnabas set out on their first missionary journey to go and tell everybody the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And along the way, they're planting churches. And the movement is spreading, and God's kingdom is growing, 
They are experiencing at the same time both persecution but also success as church after church is planted, as more and more individuals come to faith in Jesus Christ and submit their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And now we come to Acts 16. And we join Paul, who is no longer traveling with Barnabas. They've had a bit of a falling out of sorts. Uh, Don't worry, they'll work it out eventually. But in the meantime, they split up. Paul joins up with a man named Silas. And along the way, they add to their team a young man named Timothy. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and some others as well. They district of Macedonia in the city of Philippi which is a Roman colony. And Acts 16, when you read it, Acts 16 tells three different conversion stories. They all take place in the city of Philippi, and we're going to briefly look at each one. I hope that's good news to you. Conversion stories are fun. They're exciting. Christians, Historically, Christians love to hear conversion stories, love to hear how God reaches in and grabs a hold of someone and brings them from death to life. It's exciting. We get three of them in this chapter. And as we look at those three, I want you to notice the stunning diversity of these people who are coming to faith and joining the church. Okay, the first story, the first conversion story is a wealthy businesswoman. Her name is Lydia. Okay, it's, here's the story. It's the Sabbath, that means it's Saturday, and Paul and his mates walk down outside of town, outside of the town of Philippi, and down to the river. It's a short walk. And when they get to the river, there's a group of women there. And, and, and perhaps they were just down by the river resting on a Saturday. Uh, but more likely, if they weren't Jewish women, if they weren't there observing the Sabbath, then they were probably there working, washing clothes for their households. Paul shows up, and Paul does what he always does. He tells them about Jesus. And verses 14 to 15 tell us about one particular woman who heard Paul that day. It says, Acts 16, verses 14 and 15, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Okay, we know Lydia is a businesswoman because she is described as a seller of purple goods, right? A businesswoman, a trader. But why do I say she was wealthy, right? It doesn't say that. Well, we obviously don't know for sure, but the clue is in the items that she sells. Purple dye was extremely expensive back then. Wearing purple signified wealth. Right? That you, it, signif- it was like a, kind of the equivalent of a luxury car. It symbolized how much money you had if you could wear purple, which means that Lydia's world was the world of the rich and the powerful, and it is likely that she herself made a healthy profit off her purple goods. Now, Jesus indicated that in some ways it's especially difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. I, I, I think that's because rich people have a tendency to place their trust in their money and to turn their wealth into an idol. And if you're worshiping money, then you're not worshiping God. And so I think that's why Luke, the author of Acts, goes out of his way to tell us that Lydia, Lydia is a worshiper of God. She does worship God. 
She has money, but she doesn't worship her money, and she doesn't worship the pagan gods that are all over the place in the Roman Empire. She's a God worshiper. But her understanding of God is limited. So somehow she has access to part of the story, but not the whole story. And God, in his sovereignty, appoints Paul to come and fill in the gaps and explain how Jesus fits into that picture. And we're told God opened her heart to pay attention. She believes what she hears. Not only Lydia, but her whole household is baptized. And she invites Paul and his friends to come and stay in her home. And the church in Philippi grows by one well-off household that day. Praise the Lord. That's great news. Now the next thing we read is that Paul and his friends are heading to a place of prayer. And on the way, they encounter a slave girl. Okay, in this encounter, we have just swung to the opposite end of the economic spectrum. Right? A slave girl is the opposite of a wealthy businesswoman. First century slaves, they're not just poor. They, they, don't, they, don't even, they don't own anything. They don't even own themselves. Someone else owns them. In the eyes of the law, they're not really fully people. They're more property. But not in God's eyes. In God's eyes, everyone is precious. Everyone, without exception, bears the image of God. And everyone is invited to become a member of God's family. God so loved the world. Now, when I read this conversion of this slave girl, I think it's told with a bit of humor. When I read it, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I think we're supposed to get a, a, a joyful chuckle. When we read it, the situation is this. This girl has some sort of spirit of divination in her, and her owners are exploiting that and making money off her as a fortune teller. Now, that seems strange to our ears. We're not told any more details than that, so we probably shouldn't speculate about what's going on here. But what we do know is that this spirit is real, and this spirit has rightly, somehow, rightly identified what Paul and his friends are doing in Philippi. Somehow this spirit has figured that out. And so this girl, uh, who is possessed by this spirit, is following Paul around and shouting out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She doesn't just shout that once or twice but over and over and over again, all day, for many days in a row. These men, servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. These men are servants, you get the idea, over and over and over and over again for days. And finally, Paul can't take it anymore. Verse 18, it says, Paul became greatly annoyed. He finally turns around and casts the Spirit out of that girl, because he just can't take it anymore. He doesn't want to hear that one more time. Right? He just turns and says, stop. Get out in the name of Jesus. And can you imagine the quiet, the relief? Right? The girl finally stops shouting. Maybe Timothy looked at Paul and was like, finally. I thought she'd never stop. It's like, it's like what I thought of, what I remember is, it's like when my parents would shout up the stairs to me when I was a kid, turn off that racket! 
when I'd be playing my awful 80s rock music too loud, right? And they'd shout that up there, and I would press stop on the tape player, and <laughs> calm would descend on the house. <laughs> right? That's what I picture happen in this moment. Finally, the girl stops shouting, and there's peace. And then all of a sudden, the slave girl's owners realize, wait a minute. It's nice that she stopped saying that, but wait a minute. Paul just cast out our meal ticket. Now, that spirit's not in her anymore. Now, she's not going to be telling anybody's fortune anymore. We're out of business. And they're outraged. And they drag Paul before the authorities. They don't accuse him of casting out a spirit from the slave girl because probably there weren't any civil laws against that type of thing. Instead, they make a much more broad and general claim. They accuse him of disturbing the peace. And as a result, Paul and Silas are beaten. They're thrown into prison. And the scene is set for the third conversion story. Before moving on, let's just think a little bit more about the second one. It's worth pointing out that the passage never explicitly says that this girl came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So it's possible that she didn't. But it seems to me the way the story is told implies that the girl did, in fact, become a member of God's family through this incident. I mean, she had been proclaiming for days that these men were servants of the Most High God and that they were proclaiming the way of salvation. It seems highly likely that after Paul cast out that spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ he cast it out, that this girl did, in fact, place her faith in Jesus now, if I'm right about that, if that's what happened, then, then we have here yet another unlikely addition to the kingdom of God, which again highlights the staggering countercultural diversity of the body of Christ in Philippi. This was a diverse church in Philippi. There is room for the church in there is room in the church for powerful, wealthy women. There is also a welcome place for poor, powerless women. Slave girls, both. And not only is there a place for each, but they each stand equal at the foot of the cross. They, those two don't stand equal in society. One is valued and one is not. But at the foot of the cross, they are equal. In God's eyes, they are equal. Society placed a different value on those individuals, but God does not. All right, those are two conversion stories from two extremes of society. What about, what about average middle-class households? Are they welcome too? Of course they are. And now we're about to see a family like that become members of the church as well. It's midnight. Paul and Silas are no doubt nursing wounds from their public beating. They, they are unsure about what is going to happen the next day. But are they despairing about their situation? No, they are most certainly not. They're worshiping God. They're holding a little prison worship service and the other prisoners are listening in. And then what happens is an earthquake hits. It's an unusual earthquake. It's the kind that throws cell doors wide open and a kind that causes shackles to somehow fall off. And the jailer wakes up and the jailer looks around. He kind of sees doors hanging off hinges and he assumes there's been a prison break. And he is about to kill himself because he would rather die at his own hand than receive the punishment that's waiting for him for letting the prisoners go. And Paul sees what's happening and, and stops him and says, no, 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 
stop. Don't kill yourself. Don't worry. Look, we're, we're all still here. We didn't leave. And the jailer brings Paul and Silas out of their cell, uh, gets the rundown about what, what has happened, puts all of it together, and realizes that the things that Paul and Silas have been saying and singing about God are actually true. And he asks the exact right question. Right? He puts it all together, and he has one question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Right? Basically saying, I see that you have something that I don't have, and I very much want that, so what do I got to do to get it? What must I do to be saved? That's the right question. And they answer quite simply. Sometimes you ask a question, and, and th- there is no answer, or, or you just feel like you're not getting a straight answer. But this couldn't be more clear. They give a clear and simple answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. That, that's the answer. Simple, but profound. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And just like that, the entire household comes to faith, gets baptized, become members of the body of Christ. Now, jailers weren't generally rich, and they weren't especially poor. They made a decent income in general. In this case, the man clearly had made enough money to buy a home for his family and probably had a relatively comfortable kind of middle-class life. And now the whole family is rejoicing because they have believed in God. Presumably, that whole household is still rejoicing in the presence of God right now, this morning, worshiping God. Now, let's just pause and think about the incredible diversity of the early church at Philippi. Hey, just, let's just limit ourselves to these three conversion stories. No doubt there were many, many more that didn't get recorded in Acts, but let's just limit ourselves to these three. And what do we find? Both men and women, both slave and free, both old and young, both rich and poor, both educated and uneducated. All of all of it, just in these three stories, converted and added to the body of Jesus Christ. Now this was a culture, even more so than ours, this was a culture that was obsessed with status. That was obsessed with pe- keeping people in their compartments, Right? Oh, that's your status? You belong here? Let, never bump into the people from here. Oh, that's your status? You belong here? Don't ever interact with people here. Right? Obsessed with status. Obsessed with keeping people separate from one another. And the gospel just comes in like a wrecking ball and starts breaking down those walls and bringing people together. It's amazing. It's beautiful, all kinds of different people who were designed by society to be kept apart, and the gospel just brings them together, as if the cross is a magnet, just drawing people together from every aspect of life, and making one new, diverse, beautiful family. And in every one of these stories, what we see is God's sovereign will working through human individuals in order to bring about these conversions. God is sovereign, but he uses humans to build his church. God is the initiator. God gets the glory, but he uses humans engaging in evangelism to build his church. And here's the point of application as we wind down our time this morning. 
despite the fact that in many ways the 21st century Western world is radically different from the 1st century Middle Eastern world. But nonetheless, God's methods and means of building his church have not changed. God continues to spread the message of his kingdom through faithful people. Christians telling other, other people the good news about Jesus Christ. Or to put it another way that I heard from a, a different pastor, it beggars telling other beggars where to get the bread. Right? That's what evangelism is. Beggars telling other beggars where the bread is. That's evangelism. That's what's happening here in Philippi. God continues to call people from every single walk of life. The church is delightfully diverse by design, right? God set it up that way. No one is more worthy or less worthy to be part of God's family. We're all equally unworthy of that. We're not all equally worthy of that, but we are all completely equally unworthy of that, every one of us. We're all equally in need of God's grace. Thankfully, God's grace is not a finite resource, right? God's grace is not going to run out, right? You don't need to hoard it. You don't need to guard it. You don't need to say, well, I got a little bit of grace. I'm going to hang on to it. Don't want to lose it. No, no, no. It never runs out. It's not a finite resource. It's abundant. In fact, it's infinite, and it's abundantly available to anyone who will receive it. And here's the exciting part now. You and I are invited to participate in spreading God's grace around by telling others the good news, right? It's like God's given us grace, and he's like, here, go spend it. Go use it. Don't worry. There's loads more where that came from. Be generous with it, right? That's the commission. Now, of course, if it was up to us to say the right words to the right people at the right time, right, so that we could somehow, by the power of our intellect, convince them that Jesus is Lord, right? That would be unbearable, right? Who could, who could handle that kind of pressure, right? It's all up to me. I got to say the right thing. I got to convince them. But it's not. It's not. It's not all up to me. It's not all up to us. God is the one who does the work. We're just the messenger, right? God does the work. Do you believe that God is willing and able to use you that way? Do I believe that? If not, why not? Why wouldn't God use you to build his kingdom through the proclamation of the message of Jesus Christ? He's been doing it for centuries, for millennia. The Bible indicates that we are all Christians called to witness for Christ, both with our lives and with our words. And if you feel like, well, you don't know what you would say you don't know what to say. If you're presented with an opportunity for evangelism, what would you say? Let me just encourage you. Do it like the woman who lost that coin. Remember that story that Jesus told, that woman who lost the coin and looked for it and then found it? It says, Jesus said in the story, it says, once she found it, she rejoiced. Because that's happy. But then, do you remember the very, she didn't just rejoice and throw a little party by herself. She rejoiced and Jesus said, she immediately went out and called her neighbors and friends, and said, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. See, she wasn't satisfied to just have a private party of rejoicing in her home because she found the coin. She had to go out, find friends, find neighbors, and say, hey, I'm rejoicing. Please complete my rejoicing and come rejoice with me. Let me tell you what happened. 
See, I lost this coin, and it was very valuable, very dear to me, and I lost it. I thought it was gone forever, but you know what? I found it, and now I'm rejoicing. Rejoice with me. It's that simple. Are you rejoicing over your salvation? Are you? You should be. I should be. If we are rejoicing over our salvation, then we should invite people to rejoice with us. And that is evangelism. Hey, I was in darkness. I didn't even know it at the time, but I was in darkness. And Jesus came and found me and brought me into the light. And now I'm rejoicing. It is the greatest thing by far that has ever happened to me. And he's willing and able to do the same for you. That's evangelism. Here's a true story. I heard this from another pastor in Mexico. Um, I specifically chose this story because of how normal it feels. Right? You can always go multiple ways with an illustration. You can find a radical, crazy one that like, blows us all away, and there's a place for that. God is amazing. But sometimes it's good to just find a normal, regular-feeling illustration. So here goes. This pastor, his name is Carlo. Carlo felt the Lord had put it on his heart to plant a church in Juarez, Mexico. At the start of the church, it was just his family. That was the church, literally just his family. He, his wife, his kids, and his dad, that's it. That's the church, right? So I, I think it was seven people in total. Still, his church of seven, his family, uh, they still gathered on Sunday morning, and he still got up and preached to them. And uh, one Sunday, he preached a message to his congregation of his family, and the message was about evangelism. And he was preaching to his congregation, and he said, listen, God has given us this message. The gospel of Jesus Christ is true, and we are his witnesses, so we need to get out there. We need to let people know that Jesus has come, and he is the Messiah. We need to allow the Lord to do with that whatever he wants in this area. Carlo's 13-year-old son was listening. And he kind of looked around, <laughs> not many other people, and he just kind of went like this. Me? He, he's talking to me. He must be talking to me because there's not that many people in the room. So, so, okay. Message heard and received. Carlo started going out and inviting his friends and people from town to come to church. That's it. That's the story. That's the story. That's faithfulness. Carlo heard a message from God through his father, from the Bible, that said, go out and invite people to come to church. Go tell people about Jesus. Carlo heard that, felt like it was directed at him, and went out and did it. That's the story. Now you can imagine, you can fill in where that story goes from there. You can imagine how God took those simple evangelistic efforts of that 13-year-old boy, and he used it to bring more and more people into the church. That's true. That's part of the story as well. The church grew fairly rapidly. Those new people that came, you know what they did? They started inviting new people as well. That's how it works. That's how evangelism works. And then more people come, and then those people get lit on fire by the power of the gospel through the Holy Spirit, and they go out and invite more people. That's the model. It just grows from there. That's what happened at this church, and then that's what happens in many many churches. It's not to the glory of that boy. I don't even know that boy's name. I never even met that boy. But it's to the glory of the Lord. God's plan for growing his church has been the same ever since the first century, and it's very simple. People who know and love and believe in Jesus go out and tell other people about him. That's it. 
And God takes that, and by His Spirit, He uses it to grow the church. That's the pattern over and over again throughout Acts, throughout church history, and down to this day. May we be faithful with that as well. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for including us in your plan to build your kingdom. That's amazing. You've got this massive project going on throughout history. You're building a kingdom, building your church. You've promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We believe that promise. But you've called us to participate in that project. You've called us to be your witnesses, your ambassadors, your proclaimers. And so I pray that we, Ebenezer, would be faithful to that commission. For those of us who feel intimidated by that, I pray that you would give us strength and energy. For those who feel hesitant to speak publicly about our faith for whatever reason, I pray that you'd give us courage. For those of us who just feel deeply unqualified to speak of the things of the Lord to other people, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would give us words of truth and grace to speak to others. I pray that you would liberate us from the sense that it all depends on us or that it's up to us or this is us doing that, but you would help us to keep in step with the Spirit, to trust not in our own understanding, but to trust fully and completely in you and experience the peace that passes understanding. And when the time comes, that you will give us the words to speak and that you will build your church and that you will get the glory. In Christ's name, amen.